I'm Josh Hammer. I'm Ina Stepman. I'm Ben Weingarten. I'm Emily Tushinsky. And this is NACON Squad, where common good and common sense meet. NACON Squad is produced by the Edmund Burke Foundation, the home for national conservatism. Subscribe now on Apple, Spotify, YouTube, or wherever you get your podcasts. So welcome back, everyone. We have actually, we usually have a very diverse array of topics. We have a very common theme this week, which is legal judicial events that have actually, I think, in all of these circumstances, redounded to our side. So what a shocker. We're talking about not only the same topic, but it's actually like a very white pill episode. So I hope you're ready. We're, it's going to be a very optimistic take. We'll see if someone can kind of give a, a, a dose of, of Debbie Downerism just to make things a little interesting. But I will kick things off by talking about affirmative action. Then we're going to turn into Inez to talk about Biden's student loan forgiveness. Then we're going to go to Emily to talk about this 303 creative major free speech case out of Colorado. And then Ben will take us home by talking about the only non-SCOTUS case of the show, but still a legal case, which is Missouri versus Biden. Um, a huge, huge deal when it comes to free speech and censorship in general. But let's kick things off by talking about affirmative action. So, wow. I mean, um, it's been, uh, you know, maybe a week or so by the time this episode is released since the Supreme Court handed down these these epic victories. Um, and this is me being unusually white-pilled, unusually optimistic. I'm usually kind of, um, you know, you know a, a prophet of lamentation, a Jeremiah of sorts when it comes to all things judicial branch related. But um, this is an unambiguous victory, what happens here in the Students for Fair Admissions versus Harvard and, and University of North Carolina cases. It is obviously very long overdue. It has been four and a half decades since the Supreme Court first started taking us down this horrible, treacherous path of race consciousness when it comes to university admissions, starting in a 1978 case out of University of California called Bakke. It was reaffirmed, albeit tweaked a little bit, in a 2003 case out of University of Michigan called Gruder. And we've finally done it. Um, Students for Fair Admissions, uh, which, is, which is founded by Ed Bloom, um, you know, tag teaming with Consovoy McCarthy, the late great Will Consovoy, who tragically passed away from brain cancer. He quarterbacked this whole litigation. I mean, it's very sad that he did not live to see the results, but I hope that you're shining down from from heaven and proud of this outcome, Will Consovoy, because the Supreme Court has finally said that that the use of race in higher education admissions is verboten. And if you're sitting there thinking, wow, how did it take until the year 2023 to say that? Well, you know, you you're not wrong. I mean, it is shockingly overdue. And there's so much to unpack here, but I think one of my favorite lines of the John Roberts majority opinion, and this is, from my perspective, really kind of bar none, the greatest majority opinion that Chief Justice John Roberts has ever given us that does not excuse all of his various perfidies uh, and other kinds of betrayal, but this is a real kind of tour de force of an opinion. He has this really kind of wonderful line where he's talking about how this is just kind of the continuation of the vindication, the triumph of the colorblind constitution. And he's talking about how Brown versus Board of Education overturned Plessy versus Ferguson separate, uh, separate but equal, and how Brown actually said that separate but equal is is wrong, is is wrong. Period. Full stop. End of story. And then he's talking about the dissent, and he says, "Well, the dissent says the dissent says it depends." He was talking there about Sonia Sotomayor, Gatani Brown Jackson, who found themselves basically reciting nothing less than Ibram X. Kendi anti-racism, critical race theory style platitudes when it comes to equity and not equality. And if you kind of hold side by side the Roberts majority opinion and the magisterial Clarence Thomas concurrence in particular, and you kind of hold that side by side versus the Sotomayor and Jackson dissents in this case, what you really fundamentally see, and this is kind of what I argued in my, in my column on this case, you see a zero-sum duel between fundamentally different political and I would even say anthropological conceptions of humanity and its relationship to the rule of law in America. You have the actual authentic vision of that, which is true, genuine equality, colorblindness, race neutrality, no matter what your sex, race, blah, blah, blah is. We are all equal when it comes to the rule of law. And then you actually have this equity stuff. And this equity stuff, you know, as many have pointed out, I'm hardly the first to, to note this. That is identical, of course, to what the antebellum slaveholders were saying. I mean, when John C. Calhoun in the, in the 1840s was talking about the peculiar institution, so to speak, of slavery as a, quote, positive good, he was talking about racial determinism. So was Chief Justice Roger Taney in the infamous 1857 Dred Scott decision. He was talking about racial determinism when he said that if you happen to be born black, you never were a U.S. citizen, nor would you ever be eligible 
for U.S. citizenship. So this is a, a zero-sum duel of fundamentally irreconcilable conceptions of equality versus equity and of the role of race in, in the American social, legal, and political order. And, you know, again, I'm, I'm delighted to say that, that the correct side, the authentic view of the American founding ideals actually prevailed in this case. Now, the million-dollar question going forward, maybe this is a good way to kind of throw it over to the, to the panel, is what happens from here? How much wiggle room is there for kind of noxious university missions officers who still kind of try to meddle and whatnot here? And if you take the Roberts opinion seriously, the the answer is is actually not a ton. I'm sure that some will actually do it, and we're obviously going to have a litigation. There'll be some lower court fallout on this. But he does very clearly say that universities, their missions officers cannot achieve indirectly what the majority opinion says cannot be achieved directly. And one other data point that actually does reassure me and again, I can't believe that I sound so optimistic here. I mean, someone like pinch me or something. Um, but one of the things that like does actually reassure me is that admissions officers who are found to discriminate or who might be sued by white, Asian, Jewish plaintiffs will actually be personally liable for monetary damages because universities cannot indem indemnify their own employees against illegal conduct. So uh, all of that does give me something of a white pill. I'm sure they'll try to whip out some socioeconomic proxies. Harvard put out a quick statement saying that they will continue to do X, Y, Z, blah, blah, DEI, claptrap, platitude, nonsense. But uh, I, I really am more optimistic, I think, than I expected to be. And that is just a resounding triumph, really, for the conservative legal movement, which has held affirmative action just short of abortion, I think, is one of the great cases or line of cases to overturn. So I'll throw it up to you guys. Am I too optimistic or what do you guys think? Um, I guess I think you're slightly too optimistic in terms of the application to universities. I, I think this is enormously important. It's very important that we declare uh, this principle of equality and that racial preferences um, are not constitutionally acceptable in the United States. Uh, so it's not that I, I don't celebrate this as a victory. Uh, using racial preferences in this way has been legal in California for decades. Um, based on Prop 209, recently reaffirmed even by the California po uh, population in referendum. That being said, the UC, UC system has clearly used racial preferences throughout. They do it through holistic review. It's going to be a battle. This is, is you know, to, to drag Winston Churchill into this, this is the end of the beginning. Um, and that's it. Uh, it's going to be very, very difficult to stop universities from using racial preferences through other means. I fear, actually, that what they'll learn from this case is never put anything in writing, um, because that's what a lot of this, uh, a lot of the evidence, the underlying facts in this case were really shocking, right? You have emails going back and forth, which with blatant racial stereotyping of Asian applicants um, in terms of the personality score. Uh, and then you also have the, this, this uh, fact of the perfect racial balancing year after year, right? Um, where... <laughs> Obviously, they were functionally using a quota um, because they had basically the same percentage of each racial group year after year after year, which you can imagine if they were getting different applicant pools every year, right, that those percentages would change over time. No, they're basically figuring out what percentage. Um, so they're working backwards. And all of that evidence underlying, I think, is is um, important to get out there in the public, particularly with the second thing that, that I uh, want to bring up, which is the, the white pill part of this. This theoretically, and it will require litigation to extend, um, goes way beyond university admissions, right? So the universities will fight this. They'll probably find a million ways to fight it. It'll be a big, you know, whack-a-mole battle. That being said, um, theoretically, this same rationale would apply, first of all, to all other government programs that use racial preferences. So, for example, preferential loans um, and other things for uh, racial minorities, Um and then also to private companies, if we if we kind of transplant, as Josh knows often happens, is we transplant this kind of reasoning between the the Fourteenth Amendment reasoning and the the Civil Rights Act, right? Um, then we have a public accommodations piece of this that would would make private companies liable. And it, it is, you know, I, I feel like it's one of those things that's obvious, but no one is is allowed to say out loud. Uh, virtually every large corporation in America is practicing racial preferences in hiring. They're practicing it in favor of underrepresented minorities, so to speak, or so-called, right? So um, I, I think that the, the, the potential for lawfare here is very, very good. It will require a lot of follow-up work from the right on this. 
So uh, I'll be really brief. Um, certainly echo the comments louding uh, Chief Justice Roberts's majority opinion, and even more so because I always look towards it, uh, Justice Thomas's concurrence, which was magisterial, as Josh put in, and provides a lot of historical context, uh, which is fascinating and also very telling and revealing. Uh, also heavy on the references to Thomas Sowell, which is always good because that, mean, that makes Sowell immortal, probably. Uh, as a consequence of that opinion being out there. Um, to the negative of this, or not the negative, but the, okay, now begins the hard work. Um, I agree with uh, Inez's take that essentially the ending of affirmative action by the Supreme Court is exceptional and is to be allowed. but this is the opening salvo in a fight against the DEI regime itself that, as Inez points out, extends well beyond the schools to virtually every influential institution in American life. And I agree that lawfare is going to be a huge aspect of this war if we are to make the SCOTUS decision both durable and widely applicable, because the logic does point to killing the E in DEI, which would take down that entire regime. And what beyond lawfare, though, I think what this does... Uh, what this should focus our sights on is, look, the rationale was that schools get financial assistance from the federal government, and thus they're subject to, obviously, you know, these equal protection clause arguments and such. Any institution that does business with the federal government or gets any sort of benefit from the federal government or state or local authorities, for that matter, potentially those benefits can be revoked, subject to you not employing such preferences. So I think beyond the lawfare aspect, there's also a legislative aspect here as well. And I think that conservatives should be very aggressive in terms of thinking about ways to ensure that we can move beyond just rulings and trusting that people will actually adhere to those rulings and comply with them and that lawfare will actually work. But we ought to focus on legislative remedies as well. Just to be uh, quick and mention something, because I agree with everything that's been said, a very quick thing that we haven't talked about uh, is actually the um, question of the the liberal dissents here, which were atrocious. I work with a lot of really smart people on the left, and this is sort of across the board true. Um, it, the left has plenty of, of smart people, but the talent pipeline um, has been just destroyed, actually, ironically, uh, by some of the same type quote, quota type systems that are being implemented or being defended so vigorously in their dissents. Um, and that is totally noteworthy. They're just sophomoric. They fall apart. I'm not just saying this as a conservative, but they fall apart when you compare them with Justice uh, Thomas or even Justice Roberts in this case. They look foolish. They look silly. Um, and it's just a truly unfortunate state of affairs that we don't have a fair or a constructive back and forth on the highest court because um, it just the, these liberal justices are so um, in, they're, they're so ill prepared to make these defenses. And it just seems like unbefitting of the Supreme Court to have some of the arguments made that were made in these dissents. They're so like high school debate level. Um, and I don't mean to insult high school debaters. So on that note, uh, I'll kick it back over to Josh and take us to our next subject. Yeah, you know what it reminds me of, actually, Emily? I had the exact same thought that you just said during the Dobbs abortion case during oral, during oral argument. Sonia Sotomayor literally asked a question at oral argument to to the counsel for the state of Mississippi defending the abortion statute, where, where, where Sotomayor literally asked, how do you know when life actually begins? I mean, he was literally like a drunk freshman, like 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 on a bender at 4 a.m. kind of ranting to his classmate. It was ridiculous. But Emily, let's kick it right back over to you to talk about this big victory in 303 Creative. Another a great transition, actually, because the 303 Creative dissents were also sophomoric and I think unbefitting of the institution of the Supreme Court. And again, I'm saying that as somebody who it, both that and student loans, I mean, all of these things, I say that as somebody who actually really believes in a constructive back and forth of opinions and a constructive back and forth among the justices. I think that's what our court is for. But uh, man, was it unconstructively this case? And, and it's not just because there are no good arguments, um, but it's because they're just breezing past some like actual facts of the arguments. In fact, let's talk about both the, the dissents and the media. 
um, over and over again. It was misreported everywhere from Axios, an Axios headline down the line, um, basically that in this case, uh, Lori Smith refused to serve gay customers. That is over and over again. That has been repeated over and over again in the media. It has cultivated an atmosphere that in which celebrities and liberal purported legal experts are, are referring to this as a rollback of rights. But of course, Alliance Defending Freedom, which did a great job arguing this case, uh, has said over and over and it has actually you know, gotten artists on board with their cause that this is about protecting speech. This is about protecting individual freedom. This is about protecting civil liberties. In a normal time, this is exactly the type of case that the ACLU would have been fighting for. Um, but because the roles are flipped and Lori Smith happens to be a Christian, um, she is getting targeted with plenty of disinformation. The liberal justices didn't seem to even be able to compute what was happening here. And just in like the first page of the opinion, uh, you see right there that both the state and Lori Smith agreed to the fact that she would serve gay customers. It's in the, I think it's on the very first page of the opinion. They agreed to one key fact, which is that she would serve gay customers. She would serve anybody, regardless of race, religion, or any protected category. She did not want to make websites for gay weddings. That's it, period, full stop. She would happily serve those same customers if they asked her to do anything else. But as a person of faith, she didn't want to make websites. Um, that's it. And the the state of Colorado, I think this was in one of the appeals court decisions, basically didn't prove they wouldn't discriminate against her in that way. And, you know, it ends up at the Supreme Court and the decision goes 6-3. Um, but I just want to toss it open to the group and ask that, that sort of basic question of why such a basic case um, which remedies a lot of the the problems that Masterpiece created and set up, you know, where you had an atmosphere in Colorado where you, you, you keep having these things come to the courts. Um, why is it that we can't agree on something so basic right now? Well, the most ridiculous thing... Thi oh, go, go ahead, Ben, sorry. No, feel free, Josh. Uh, I, I would say that like, the most ridiculous thing about 303 Creative is that both parties stipulated that this was expressive conduct. Like, like, like both parties, the state of Colorado actually conceded as part of this litigation, that what Lori Smith was doing in creating these websites for weddings was expressive conduct. And once you once once you can see that, it, it really should have been a nine-zero opinion. To your point, Emily. I mean, you know, the very first thing I did when this opinion came out was I control F Barnett because I wanted to see if West Virginia versus Barnett was cited. And sure enough, that, that played a massive role. Actually, that that citation in Justice Gorsuch's majority opinion in Barnett is this comp this compelled speech case from 1943, I believe, during World War II, where you have a Jehovah's Witness in West Virginia who did not want to be forced to say the Pledge of Allegiance. And it's actually a very liberal opinion, to be fully candid with you. I've, I've actually expressed skepticism about the outcome myself. It's not fully kind of like a, like a Nakani opinion, I think would be a polite way of saying it. But, but it, it, the most famous line from this opinion is, you know, I... Uh, it, it, if there is any kind of fixed star in our constitutional constellation, the government shall not prescribe orthodoxy when it comes to matters of speech. I'm paraphrasing there. And to Emily's point, once upon a time, um, you know, you know, again, like that's not the, like, the most Nat Connie phrase, but that was a liberal phrase. I mean, like the ACLU once upon a time would have been all in on that proposition. So my, I, I get I'm cautiously optimistic here that, that this is the constitutional holding, the First Amendment holding that many of us have been waiting for in this bake the damn cake bigot style of cases. But just like affirmative action, it's going to be played out in the lower courts. So the question now is, what is expressive conduct and what is not? Because that that intersection between expressive conduct versus public accommodation law is really where this is going to go from here. But as of now, it's a huge victory. And um, you know, no offense to, to to my friend and co-panelist Inez with with the higher rest stuff, but I actually think three or three creative is the second biggest victory from this past week after affirmative action. So uh, I would just add, first of all, on the media half of this, that obviously they're operating in the worst kind of faith. And the same arguably goes for the illiberal Supreme Court justices as well. To me, what the what the majority opinion sort of gets at is the state not only can't coerce your speech, but it can't coerce you to go along with the state religion and violate your conscience. And I think the leftist judges as well, our justices, as well as the media, show you that they believe you have to comply with their state religion. You have to violate your conscience and engage in 
acts and conduct that you disagree with because it's their way or the gulag, essentially. And that, I think, is ultimately why one of the reasons why this ruling is such an important one, because it pushes back on the notion, just like as I'll talk about in this lower court, this federal ruling on that the government cannot censor speech that it disfavors. This is sort of the opposite. It can't coerce you to speak in the government's tongue. And if we don't have that, we obviously have nothing resembling a free country. But I'd also note, I'd emphasize, and I was remiss in not not mentioning this during the affirmative action segment, but I think it's very telling the animus and the apoplexy that you see on the left and, of course, among their media mouthpieces and in the ruling class more broadly. The affirmative action ruling, essentially what they're saying in attacking that ruling is we believe in racial discrimination. And in this ruling, they're saying, we believe in coercing you to violate your conscience. And I think it's very important to make clear that that is what the leftist perspective is. And that's where their apoplexy is rooted. It's rooted in a belief that, yes, racial discrimination is right if the right people are benefiting and the wrong people are getting punished by it. And yes, you ought to be coerced to, to go along with our speech or you're a dangerous purveyor of misdis and malinformation and you might be a domestic terrorist. Yeah, I'd only add to all of that. Um, look, this this should have been an easy case, as both Emily and Josh noted. Uh, once once this was stipulated as expressive conduct by both parties, uh, this should have been a nine zip case. The fact that it's not, I agree with everything that Ben said there. Um, there. But there there are two axes in this type of case that I think are going to probably pop up more and more um, in the next three to five years in the court system. Uh, the first is this expressive, the one that's been mentioned already, right? The, the, the distinction between expressive conduct and public, really public accommodation, right? Because um, it, it's going to be between the First Amendment liberties, both religious and speech related, um, and association, which gets the short shrift here, uh, and and public accommodations law of a sort of uh, CRA beast, um, Civil Rights Act beast that keeps expanding and expanding and expanding in terms of the categories covered and in terms of protected classes. Um, so that's going to be, I think, one axis along which there will be quite a bit of litigation. The the other one, though, uh, not really addressed here, but one of the lower um, one of the lower court opinions in this case, this 303 case, designed, uh, basically claimed uh, and tried to make ruling on the basis of the idea that this woman was a monopoly, that because only she can design these websites in a particular way, right? She has an aesthetic monopoly, if you will, on on her particular wedding website. Um, Another one of these axes, I think that we're going to see quite a bit of play on, perhaps some that uh, make some strange bedfellows, is going to be this distinction between the rights of the individual on the one hand of the spectrum and the rights of publicly traded corporations on the other, with something like Hobby Lobby falling in the middle it's a you know sort of I, I don't know the corporate forms very well but like closely held corporation in other words the family was still very much in charge of of the company versus a publicly traded company that has a board and like shareholders and everything else right uh and and i, I think that you're going to see a lot of action along this this case very simple case in that regard right she's a single entrepreneur um but i think we are going to have to start asking the question okay what about a um, publicly traded company or perhaps multinational company, right, that has thousands of employees, does that company come with some of these these rights to expressive speech? And if so, uh, can the expressive speech, for example, be from all of America's banking corporations? Well, we don't want to serve uh, Second Amendment people who um, are in organizations who support the Second Amendment. That's part of what we're seeing with the debanking crisis, right? So these issues are distinguishable and there are multiple ways that you can distinguish them, but they also exist on a kind of spectrum. Um, and I think that there's going to be a lot of litigation on that spectrum in the next like several years. I think that's probably something to watch. Just imagine Lori Smith quickly. We're out of time, but just imagine that that woman was like an Episcopalian website designer who was asked by Christians to create an anti-gay marriage website. Uh, the left would say this woman is absolutely an artist. And she is absolutely within her rights to be doing this. Um, and it's just because of the players involved here that they have complete ideological blinders on. 
Yeah, but at the same time, actually, Inez, I, th I think is totally spot on here in talking about how this is going to get dicey. And, and there is some mild de degree of intellectual tension here between kind of some of our calls for common carrier regulation for some stuff. I mean, none of all of this is thorny. All of it's going to play out in future litigation. Um, but one thing that is not going to play out in future litigation is the Biden administration's unilateral student loan forgiveness plan. So we're kicking it back to you, Inez, to talk about that. <laughs> Yeah, and, and I actually agree with Josh. I think legally this case is less important in some ways, um, but I think in terms of our politics, it's extremely important. Uh, so legally, there's the, most of what this case hinged on, honestly, was not the merits. It's standing. Uh, I'm not going to sort of bore our audience with the, the uh, distinctions there, but it, the question was whether the people who were actually saying that they were harmed by Biden's forgiveness plan actually had standing to sue and whether they could actually prove a harm. Um, that's not really the important aspect of this case, either legally or politically, right? Um, basically, one of these twin cases was booted down for lack of standard standing, and then th the case brought by the, the state was actually um, upheld standing, and then they reached the merits and said no. To the extent that this is legally important, I do think it's this court is sort of um, shaping up a coherent doctrine about enforcing the separation of powers against the administrative state. Right. Uh, they're moving towards a more unified conception and a more originalist conception of what the powers of the, the federal executive agencies vis-a-vis -vis Congress are, uh, what the powers of the judiciary are in reviewing the behavior of executive agencies. I, I think that's all to the good. Um, this is another case that sort of stacks on top of, for example, EPA versus West Virginia from uh, a term or two ago. So I think this is all to the good on the substance. I mean, very clearly, the, the Biden administration did not expect uh, this this move to be upheld, right? Um, it was on extremely shaky ground, but it did everything politically that it needed to do for the Biden administration. It got young people out to vote in 2022 midterms um, on the basis of loan forgiveness. It's going to continue to be a political, a potent political issue for the left. Um, look, there's a reason that debt jubilees are one of the oldest tricks in the demagoguery book, right? Um, or the dictator's book. I think that this is going is an issue that's going to repeat itself over and over again. In fact, I'm I'm willing to make this prediction. Um, the Biden administration will find a new legal rationale under which to justify it. Um, and then that will be kicked to the courts. And hopefully that'll take them past the election, at which point they can either blame the evil Republicans for kicking loan payments back into drive and getting rid of, rid of forgiveness. Or uh, if Biden wins the second term, he's no longer going to have to stand for office. So it doesn't matter so much that he's going to tick off such a large part of his base. Um, but that's the sort of on the politics of it. I think it's incredibly important that the Republican Party or the right, whatever you want to call it, um, sidesteps this a continual debate where Democrats are going to be able to use this issue over and over and over again. Um, because the student loan crisis is, in fact, an actual crisis. It is really affecting the lives of millions of Americans. The cost of college is so out of control. I've talked about this many, many times. But to me, both the obvious political solution and the obvious solution in terms of justice is to propose a debt forgiveness plan based on uh, money that comes not from uh, the, the rest of the taxpayers, many of whom, uh, the majority of whom do not have a four-year degree, and uh, not re redistributing from those taxpayers to the children of upper, upper middle class families, but instead putting this bill uh, where it belongs, which is at the feet of universities who have benefited enormously from public largesse and public programs in order to expand not only their ideological hold uh, that we talk about all the time over America's halls of power, but also to access uh, trillions of dollars of taxpayer money. Um, and really, they are they are the bad actors here. I think they're a, a uh, just place to put to put this bill. Um, but yeah, I, I don't think that the the typical right wing, and I've said this before, and I have a, a backgrounder coming out, a policy focus coming out with IWF about this. I don't think that it's either politically valuable, viable or realistic um, in terms of, of what people are actually experiencing in their lives for the right to continue to deny that this is, or, or to continue to characterize this as a pull yourself up by your bootstraps problem. You know, you sign the dotted line at 18. Um, that just doesn't reflect the enormous cost of college in comparison to 20 or 30 years ago and the way that it's become so necessary because of a lot of these subsidies and largesse from the from the federal government um 
has become necessary in, in many jobs that previously didn't require college degrees. So I think there's a lot of benefit to screwing the universities here, uh, both politically and in terms of, of fairness uh, to Americans. So I, I hope the, ra- the right looks at issues like that now that this the court has taken this plan off the table for very clear legal reasons. So I, I wonder primarily about your point as that Biden will effectively try to just do this another way. He's already kind of intimated at that in, in his somewhat limited remarks on the subject. Well, it'll be interesting to see what they what they actually do. Um, but yeah, I mean, I look, legally, I agree with you. This was a very straightforward case um, of statutory interpretation. I mean, it literally just kind of implicated whether the word modify can be read so as to actually mean annul. I mean, whereas those two words actually have very different meaning. Obviously, we've all seen this clip by now of Nancy Pelosi at a press conference back in July of 2021, where she literally tells her audience, she's like, I know, like, our voters, Democrats want President Biden to unilaterally just kind of cancel student loans, but he doesn't have that power. I wish he did. But that has to be an act of Congress. Um, You know, one kind of I'm not sure what was happening in John Roberts' chambers last week or why he decided to kind of go higher energy than normal. But he had kind of a, a, a delectable quote of the Nancy Pelosi press conference in a majority opinion, which was pretty spicy stuff for for John Roberts. Wouldn't have really batted much of an eyelash if it was Alito, but the fact was Roberts definitely made me look at it. Um, you know, I mean, like one other like bigger, broader legal theme thing that I'll mention and then toss over to Ben and Emily is, you know, it's just a reaffirmation of what the Supreme Court in recent terms has started to refer to as the major questions doctrine. Um, that was kind of the guiding impetus for the West Virginia versus EPA ruling last term, which kind of flew under the radar when you had Dobbs and Bruin, the gun case. But that was also a big, big ruling. So, you know, the, the court has granted cert um, to agree to hear a case next term that has potential to overturn Chevron deference, which I'm sure has gotten, like, you know, every libertarian lawyer in the Beltway kind of, you know, all sorts of kind of antsy and eager with, with excitement. I'm being a little tongue in cheek. Overturning Chevron, I agree, would be a good thing. Um, but, um, yeah, I mean, good, good stuff here. I'm not sure how much else to. I'll just, yeah, I'll just make that. Oh, go ahead, Ben. Um, uh, well, I was just going to say, uh, echo that point, the major questions doctrine. I don't know if that is the best rationale or maybe the most comprehensive, uh, rationale that you can use to go about, uh, striking at the administrative state, but obviously that it was invoked. And that it seems like it's going to be viewed by the judges as a justices as applicable widely. I think it's obviously all to the good, and it it shows uh, the significance of the West Virginia v. EPA opinion. Um, I would say also just to talking more broadly about kind of the nature of these opinions. It was interesting that the right wing so called or conservative so called uh, justices on the court really did take it to the dissenters in several cases, pretty striking way and obviously invoking that even Nancy Pelosi said this was illegal. Um, and I, it is worth also noting, you know, would Republicans ever think about putting out plans that they knew facially upfront would obviously be unlawful and say, you know, we dare you to stop us and we're going to we're going to win political points off of this? Probably not. But again, if we want to win, we better think about what is the equivalent that actually is lawful and consistent with our principles of shifting the Overton window on issues like Democrats do. If they are going to use these tactics where they throw out things that they know are unlawful because it will cause action in an interim before some future ruling, uh, I think we ought to think very seriously about how they're going to apply that tactic going forward and then what our counter tactic is. Lastly, it's also worth noting, I think, that uh, Roberts, I don't know if it was in this, I, I guess he didn't have a majority on this one, if I remember correctly, uh, opinion, but I know that in one of the opinions, and maybe it was the affirmative action, he talked about how, um, you know, there's kind of misinformation and disinformation being spread about the court, and it's an attack on the institution, and, et cetera. And I think in this case, at least during this term, maybe it redounded to the benefit of the court and the American people that Roberts is such a quote unquote defender of the institutions. Usually it leads to mealy mouthed and watered down opinions. But maybe in this case, it has actually incensed him to such a degree that he'll actually go along with the people who are the true leaders of the court, Thomas and Alito. Yeah, this is one of those interesting issues where 
for the liberal base, it's really good to kind of uh, whip their own like activist class into a frenzy and it's good for their ideological priorities. But it's also for the right in general who are extremely animated by this because they you know, couldn't afford any particular college or they worked really hard and got into a college they wanted to, but decided to go with the state school or decided to go the community college route. Uh, people who worked their butts off three jobs to pay off loans. Um, th- I mean, even just people who right now can't afford to send their kids to schools. All of this is deeply personal and meaningful for uh, y- your average voter. And so I think it's it's interesting to have an issue like this that is, is both animating for the base of the left and the right. I would argue that the left or that the right probably has even more uh, clout with the the general population, even though I think it's close, but it's close in a very polarized way. Either people really, really love it or people absolutely despise it. And I think there are probably more people out there who uh, you would show up to actually vote that actually really absolutely despise it. So, I mean, I think in this issue, that's that's something that's interesting, but it obviously um, you know demands that we take uh, a look at our higher education education system, period. Like if the conservative answer is don't forgive student loan debt um, as opposed to don't forget forgive student loan debt because it will make a system so much worse than as opposed to actually fixing it by skewing the continuing to skew the incentives. Here's what we're going to do to rejigger the incentives and totally change all of that. Um, it's just not going to be politically as powerful and it probably won't be morally based in, in something as virtuous. Um, but I think if you have Bernie Sanders out there saying free community college, uh, it's just politically a much more free, free community college. Let's forgive everybody's everybody's loans. That's just a much easier argument to make. Um, but I also just think it's immoral to have a, a system of higher education that's so incredibly unaffordable. Um, like ours is right now, um, and, and unattainable to people who want to go to good schools. They have to go into tens of thousands of dollars of debt, put off, off home ownership, marriage, the American dream to get a decent degree in psychology. I, I think that's completely immoral, and it does demand attention from Republicans in, in that way. Right. And the only other aspect of this I don't think we've quite touched on that we'll kick it over to Ben for our final segment is the question of why student loans? Why are we choosing to prioritize this as opposed to any other thing? I mean, I saw this ridiculous statement from the president of the NAACP whose name is escaping me. And he was complaining about how how blacks in America hold a disproportionate share of student loan debt. And, you know, my response is, well, you know, I, I mean, I don't actually know the top of my head what the racial breakdown is of mortgage debt or, or, or auto loan debt or various other forms of loans, right? So, I mean, how insulting do you think that we should automatically prioritize this and we could do so unilaterally? The whole thing is a total mess. It doesn't quite hold up. Uh, but Emily, your point is actually very well taken, I think, about the Bernie Sanders um, analog and the right's response to that. But Ben, let's kick it over to you to talk about what I think in any other week would have been our our headline topic, frankly, which is this massive ruling in a high profile big tech litigation. Yeah. So fittingly, on July 4th in Missouri v. Biden, which I've termed the most important First Amendment case that the public broadly didn't know about probably until this ruling, uh, this judge out of the, I believe it's the Western District of Louisiana, ruled that and issued a temporary injunction which essentially freezes the public part of the mass public-private surveillance and censorship regime that has been imposed on America dating back to at least around 2018, according to the case, and, and I would suspect probably well before that as well. Missouri v. Biden, more so than the Twitter files or a congressional oversight or journalistic investigative work combined, I think, has exposed and blown the lid off this collusion, coercion, cajoling, uh, and, and, and sometimes even just more organic relationship between almost almost every federal agency. I sort of say that jokingly, but dozens of federal agencies potentially officials within the Biden White House explicitly on uh, maybe to the big guy, arguably based upon his public comments talking about Facebook killing people uh, with respect to the Chinese coronavirus and then third party cutouts, often government funded and pervasively intertwined with the government, worked with social media companies to suppress speech Starting with the Hunter Biden laptop story, if you look at what the defendants allege uh, in this case, and obviously moving to election integrity and outcomes in 2020, and then on subsequent to that, to the Chinese coronavirus, everything around it, 
and subsequently myriad other issues potentially, all of which have been in the government's crosshairs and essentially they've leaned on big tech, obviously with all the power that goes along with the federal government, regulatory and otherwise, and gotten those companies to suppress our speech and mass. And essentially what the judge ruled in this case in a, again, fitting Independence Day ruling is that what's been alleged by the defendants and what they've shown in limited discovery, which has nevertheless been voluminous and provided a treasure trove of evidence to support the claim that there's been a massive First Amendment violation by the federal government by proxy, essentially. He said that the the defendants have made, the plaintiffs rather have made a compelling argument and thus he is going to issue this temporary injunction and freeze all government-led collusion, coercion, and otherwise correspondence with not only the social media platforms, but also the third-party cutouts that the government has worked with and in some cases convened to push the social media companies to change their terms of service, to censor entire narratives, uh, as well as individuals and certain content, and then actually to go about hoovering up information from those platforms and provide them with offending content. So if there is a mass public-private censorship regime, and I think it's been very clearly established that there is, this freezes the public part of it. And in theory, that could blow, that could serve as a moral blow potentially to it. Now, of course, uh, we're recording this on July 5th, and as expected, after the July 4th ruling, already the defendants, which is almost the entirety of the federal government, has appealed this case, I believe, to the the Fifth District, uh, uh, Fifth Circuit, rather, Court of Appeals. So we'll see ultimately how that plays out. That was expected that there would be appeals. Uh, I've seen people critiquing this opinion, challenging, well, how are you going to enforce it? How are you going to ensure that federal authorities aren't coordinating and communicating with a, a wink and a nudge to social media companies or to the cutouts? But nevertheless, what I think the big takeaway, the positive from this ruling is that a judge does see, a federal judge does see merit to the idea that the federal government has effectively merged with these putatively private actors to censor speech, that these First Amendment violation claims do have merit and are legitimate. And even though he isn't ruling on those claims, he is saying that from what he's seen, again, from relatively limited discovery, but staggering discovery in terms of just email after email, document after document, deposition after deposition, showing the myriad ways that everyone from Biden administration officials to uh, the Office of the Surgeon General to the CDC and CISA, of course, the linchpin of this effort, as I've covered ad nauseum here, that yes, indeed, they have effectively imposed the largest mass censorship regime, arguably in, in the history of mankind, and certainly the most sophisticated one. So it's a massively important ruling. I'd urge everyone to check out the 155-page memo that the judge puts forth. If you just read the intro and the conclusion, that kind of goes to the key points. But in between that, he goes through, and the reason it's 155 pages is because there is so much evidence supporting the claim that the government has worked hand-in-glove with the big tech companies to censor that the examples have to be read to be believed. And he takes it from the White House to the CDC, Surgeon General, CISA, and beyond as well, and shows you the myriad ways that these apparent First Amendment violations have taken place. So it's a massive legal win, albeit a preliminary one that is going to be fought tooth and nail. By the way, the fact that the government agencies are already appealing suggests that they are apoplectic, that their censorship regime could potentially fall, uh, also, one of the things that the judge notes is this injunction needs to be issued now because these activities could be ongoing, which effectively would amount to election interference if you consider us in an election cycle right now. So there are myriad takeaways from the ruling. It's it's worth reading. It's heartening to know that the First Amendment isn't necessarily a dead letter as of today. Obviously, this fight is just beginning. I would note also, however, that in the drafting of this injunction, this kind of lays out a roadmap for what legislation would look like to actually enforce such a policy of no collusion uh, in violation of our First Amendment and undermining and, and attacking, quote unquote, disfavored speech. And in fact, actually, in the Republican White House, there have already been a couple instances of legislation amendments being put forth in bills during this term that push for this, including one 
that I supported, including in testimony at DHS, which prevents there from being any funding for anything resembling a disinformation governance board. And beyond that, uh, any sort of speech policing activities uh, within DHS and, of course, at CISA, uh, and, and also no coordination or money to the third-party cutouts that DHS has engaged with. So there's legislative action that ought to follow on with this. The fact that the Biden administration is fighting this is very telling in and of itself. But nevertheless, this was a resounding victory on Independence Day. And I think one to be celebrated, even for those of us who generally are the, the quote-unquote Debbie Downers on these sorts of issues. So curious as to your take on uh, the, the merits of the ruling and, and kind of what comes next. As uh, one of those reliable Debbie Downers, I mean, I, I agree this is this is a great ruling. It is preliminary, as you say. Um, but I just want to make two brief points about it. One, yes, I do fear the just don't write anything down loophole, right? Um, the extent to which... And we see this a lot um, in other contexts, but the extent to which people who mostly went to the same schools, um, who you know, find themselves kind of both in the ruling class, the, the extent to which it matters what side of the public-private divide they're on, I think, is not very. <laughs> the answer to that question is it, not very. It doesn't matter very much um, because a lot of these people hold this very similar worldviews, and so they can coordinate without actually coordinating or they can coordinate, you know, over lunch and the diplomat. Um, and and those kinds of things are really, really difficult to stop. That being said, anything that makes it harder to do is something worth celebrating. Um, and the second point I wanted to make is the extent to which this like public-private divide in reality just doesn't seem um, to matter very much is, I think, why the right is looking for um, increasingly, whether at NatCon or elsewhere, other part like post-liberals, whatever, um, why the, the sort of intellectual right is looking for a new framework under which to assess a lot of these these issues or some of the most important that confront us. And it seems like traditional conservative analysis in many ways from from the Reagan era. It's not so much that I, I like disagree with some of the underlying principles there, but it just doesn't seem to reflect what we're actually seeing, which is that these sectors are mixed. They're public, private. They're influencing each other. They're they're sort of all swimming in the same the same uh, you know whirlpool together. And um, and so I think that's that that really is what undergirds to some extent this NatCon project or or other um, sort of of uh, let's say non traditional non Reaganite uh, right wing projects is the extent to which observably as we see in this case from Discovery, but and we'll continue to see. That this distinction between the public and private really just doesn't reflect reality. I mean, it, it is the issue. Like, it, it is like the NACON issue, frankly. Maybe as maybe aside from like public religiosity, as far as I see it. I mean, like, I I was at Claremont Institute's Constitution Day Symposium in Orange County, California, last September, on a panel, and I gave my prepared remarks, which became a longer essay for Claremont's American Mindsight on this exact question: uh, the collapse, the public-private distinction when it when it comes to big tech, when it comes to debanking, and what do we do about it? So, um, uh, you know, I'll be real quick because we're short on time. I want to give Emily a word? It, this ruling, obviously preliminary, it'll get appealed to the Fifth Circuit. That's a court I clerked on. It's a right of center court. Not that that means necessarily a ton when it comes to this particular issue, but it's at least a cause for maybe cautious optimism. But there is inherent value to having certain things put into the federal order, to having kind of federal judges vindicate some of what some of us in kind of the broader commentary, you know, chattering headspace have been yelling for the past few years. And it really is kind of a nice vindication of a lot of what many of us have been saying and writing. And um, again, we'll see what happens this litigation, but it's it's good stuff. And again, any other week, this would have been, I think, our headline topic. Yeah, it is. It's huge because we're getting to the point where government is trying to exercise um, just immense control over speech. The White House's decisions here, everything revealed by the Twitter files puts that uh, just totally on display. And, you know, it's another one that in a different era, um, the the ACLU and actually the entire sort of defender, uh, anyone who considers themselves a defender of civil liberties would be uh, not just you know, pushing this aside and maybe saying, well, there were some issues, but I get it. Um, you know, you had people on CNN and MSNBC saying, you know, this is not a world we want to live in uh, based on the decision of the judge. This is something that we would all, you know, uh, uh, with a consensus as defenders of civil liberty, be uh, not just like, eh, but totally outraged by and terrified by. It's some of the, one of those things like from the, the church committee era that we look back on now in horror collectively. 
it's happening right now. And we don't have that consensus position because our, our politics of the moment are, are somewhat more complicated and, and people just can't take, again, their ideological blinders off. But if you take those blinders off, as people like Matt Taibbi have done, um, you see very clearly that this is a problem. All right. So let's transition to two final thoughts, perhaps for a rare dose of, of non-legal developments on this very legal episode. Well, before we move to non-legal things, let me maybe put a, a sort of bow on some of the things that we've been talking about since this has been such a legal episode. Uh, it, it's very clear that these wins mean, like the, the response to these wins for the right in the courts will be the attempt to delegitimize the courts. Um, I've seen at least three prongs of this uh, attack. Um, the first being what we've been hearing already for a couple of years now, which is the the floating the idea of packing the court. Um, the, the second being the, the recent New York Times op-ed from uh, by a law professor, I forget his name, basically encouraging the other two branches of government to ignore the courts and, and ignore court rulings. Um, and then the third being the, the series of ProPublica stories we've talked about on this podcast, I'm sure plenty of people have heard about elsewhere, which is this attempt to uh, delegitimize the court by implying that its members are corrupt. And it's worth pointing out here that we're kind of on this issue where we're playing on the opposite team as NatCon usually does in a sense. You know, we talk every week here um, about how it is right to delegitimize our institutions because they have lost um, the the trust of the American people, not because of, as, as Ben always talks about, not because of misinformation or lies, um, but in fact, because they're correctly perceiving that those institutions are completely hollowed out, um, swallowed by ideology uh, and, and um, you know, just wearing, as, as somebody said on Twitter, wearing the skin suit, right, of, of the, the institution that was formally trusted. Here, we're in the position of saying, hey, actually, in this small, this very important institution, the courts, right, uh, there is real resistance. Now, whether that resistance will triumph, I don't know, but there is real resistance The, the there. This new majority in the Supreme Court is handing out actual substantive W's. Um, they can't do everything for us, of course, and we talk about that a lot. But uh, that is going to engender a backlash to try to delegitimize that. And I think we're going to have to be on the side of actually saying, no, this institution you can trust. Um, and that's, that's a difficult argument to make in, in the current environment where institutional trust is so low. So we should be prepared for that to be an uphill battle. So I, I will, I guess, violate kind of the spirit of what I just said and, and briefly put a legal bow as well. And then actually, I want to talk very briefly about something totally unrelated here. Um, the legal bow is, uh, I, I want to just give a, a, a special shout out. I mentioned in the affirmative action segment um, how Will Consboy, who was the former Clarence Thomas clerk and a brilliant lawyer who kind of quarterbacked this whole litigation, uh, tragically passed away far too young from brain cancer before the before the the opinions were issued, but um, what my, one of my for, former law school lecturers and actually one of my closest friends probably in the world is, is a man named Adam Mortara, another fellow former uh, CT clerk, and he actually argued this case at trial against Harvard. He was the one whose you know excellent trial advocacy for students for fair admission was the one that actually got Harvard to divulge these crazy tables showing that a black person in the 40th percentile had an equivalent chance of getting admitted to Harvard as an Asian and American in the 100th percentile. Um, so I, I just want to give a special kind of very personal shout out to to, to Adam Mortara, who's been totally vindicated here along, of course, with with his former boss, Clarence Thomas. And again, if you haven't read, if you have not read Thomas's concurrence in this case, you really need to go ahead and do so. Um, just very briefly, I'm on a totally unrelated hard transition topic, and I'll be real quick here. Um, Israel has been currently, or I guess they've already ended actually, by the time we're recording this, a, a brief two to three day mission in Janine, um, in the Northern West Bank. And I, I just have to say that it's, it, it, this watching the way the media has treated this is just yet another reminder that there is really like no issue that I'm aware of where the media just gangs up ducks in a row to report the exact same woefully one-sided version of events. As, as this particular conflict. Um, I, I mean, every New York Times headline that I have seen, you know, makes it sound like, you know, Israel is the aggressor, that they're going in there, they're, you know, slaughtering Palestinians, all this stuff. 
no, uh, there has already been something of a third intifada. We, we haven't started calling it that, but there's been something of a third intifada that's actually gone underway in Israel for the past year and a half, two years now. There have been numerous ter- terrorist attacks in Tel Aviv itself. This is not like limited to the settlements, although the settlements have tragically also paid a dear price. The village of Eli saw four Jews slaughtered just two weeks ago. But Janine has emerged uh, as a massive, massive hotspot for Hamas, Palestinian Islamic Jihad, and a new group called Lion's Den. And again, I I mean, what country would act differently when you have legitimate kind of Islamist terror organizations launching massive suicide attacks, rammings, knifings, shootings from effectively within your own territory, Um, not to get into the international law, but it is within Israeli territory here. So, you know, even the Biden administration actually said that Israel has had a right to do this operation in Janine. So if the Biden administration is conceding it, you really have to wonder how far out there are these media propagandists who are just blindly affirming the Palestinian version of events without anything whatsoever to consider on the alter- on the alter- on the alternative so I guess I'll jump in and do another hard transition although and maybe table further conversation on that for another week because there are uh, any number of kind of percolating signs of uh, impending disaster with respect to Israel, uh, not least of which the continued efforts to effectuate some kind of deal with Iran um, and to actually push European countries to ease up on Iran. And then beyond that, uh, all the left-wing groups who are, uh, you know, effectively seeking to destabilize Israel from within. So it's tumultuous time, which is ultimately going to redound uh, to the detriment of the U.S. national interest at the end of the day. But uh, I would argue the administration doesn't have the U.S. national interests in heart, obviously, at heart with respect to the Middle East. They want to empower uh, the world's leading state sponsor of jihad uh, with all that that entails. Tabling that for a second, um, I wanted to just reference or, or kind of go back to a point that I often do when we get to Supreme Court opinion season, which is that I don't believe that the founders would have envisioned or wanted there to be a time where... Americans waited with bated breath for all of these decisions to come down and then what this and looked forward to what decisions the courts would be taking on or what cases the court would be taking on uh, in the next year. Um, obviously, the fact that we are so focused on how is the Supreme Court going to rule on this issue, uh, the, the existence of the administrative states, uh, all of these myriad issues. Uh, we would not be here, obviously, if we had a legislative branch or if uh, an executive branch hadn't usurped so much power from a legislative branch. Um, this is not the governmental system that was envisioned. Um, I think the notion of a co-equal branches in and of itself uh, is a potentially dubious position to take. And, you know, obviously that's a provocative argument. Maybe we'll get into that at some point. Um, but we shouldn't be waiting for the court to... Uh, put down its decisions from on high on all of these issues, many issues at least, of which which should be dealt with by the legislative branch and certainly not by the executive branch. So I hope 50 years from now we're looking, and maybe this court will help uh, shepherd this in to the extent they do ultimately put the screws to the administrative state. But I hope 50 years from now, uh, if things go right in this country, that we're looking at a time where the legislative branch has reasserted itself, the legislative branch, which is obviously closest to us, the governed uh, and who are supposed to govern with our consent and not unelected bureaucrats completely and wholly unaccountable to us uh, or presidents who usurp all manner of powers uh, that are not theirs. Ultimately, it should be the legislative branch that makes these decisions and it shouldn't fall on the on the Supreme Court. But also the fact that to make those Supreme Court opinions durable actually requires legislation only further calls on the legislative branch to assert itself. So uh, hopefully, you know, if we're going forward in more of a NatCon uh, kind of generation here, the legislative branch will pick up the baton and actually make these opinions have teeth and be durable. Otherwise, I think we're probably looking at a time where the left is going to engage in uh, this century or millennium's form of nullification. That's probably what comes next. Well, I wanted to go last just because you may have noticed some of our homes are a little darker. And I just thought I owed uh, my co-hosts and the great Edmundberg Foundation team a shout out uh, because I had a scheduling mishap today and everyone is here 
uh, after work hours, uh, bringing this podcast to all the listeners and viewers, um, which we appreciate immensely. And I just wanted to give a shout out to them and to the whole Edmund Burke Foundation team for uh, always being so understanding. It's just a privilege to be here. And I appreciate you guys so much. Um, and I'm not just saying that to grovel. I really do. And uh, it's, it's a great team. Um, and I hope everyone's enjoying the product um, because uh, some folks work really hard to get it out. Uh, so that's my final thought today. Well, Emily, my final, final thought is I look forward to my Johnny Walker Blue Label on your credit card next time we're in D.C. to make up for it. But in any event, it's been a really fun episode. Hope you guys had a wonderful Independence Day. And on behalf of Ben, Emily, and Inez, I'm Josh Hammer. We will see you at the next NatCon Squad.